Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the next installment of the SUS News podcast series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and this is where we would usually say hello to our uh, a big Texas hello to our co-host, Gene Robinson. But uh, this week, and as we speak, Gene Robinson is on his way to the U.N., to talk about the humanitarian applications for unmanned aircraft systems. And I can't think of anybody better because Gene spent uh, many moons in the field with this technology and the applications. So uh, it's good that we've got somebody up there with some empirical knowledge representing the community. I'm happy for that. But that, so what we're going to do is we usually talk about the news, but now we're just going to launch in to the program and speak with our guest, uh, Mr. Ted McGear from Arrowville. Uh, Ted's been around for a little while, and I think this ought to be an interesting conversation, get a little perspective on uh, the industry and the technology. So, Ted, could you please uh, maybe come on and tell the listeners a little bit about your background and yourself and how you became involved with Unmanned aircraft systems. Hello, hello, Patrick. Thanks for that. Um, hello to your listeners from the Columbia River Gorge, where I'm uh, at the moment wandering along the grass runway with my dogs at our Aramel headquarters in Houston, Washington. Uh, so I'm running a little company of a dozen people out of a house here uh, in southern Washington, and we're developing a new unmanned aircraft, primarily for civil applications, uh, something I've been trying to make happen for 25 years. <laughs> uh, hopefully this aircraft is going to have the economy necessary to make that a reality. All right, so here we're going to we're gonna flash back. When you first got into this business 25 years ago, what were they called? Uh, well, uh, I suppose at that point they were called Unmanned aircraft, they had been called drones for decades before that. Now I guess they're called drones again, but a rose by any name would sell as sweet or as sour, depending on your point of view. That's true. I, I kind of judge people's, let's say, you know, along the timeline, the participation timeline, when people are like, I'm like, well, what were they called when you first got it? Well, they were remotely piloted vehicles. Or they were remotely piloted aircraft, or they were unmanned uh, UAVs, or whatever. The nomenclature keeps changing, and that seems like the only progress we're getting out of all of the airspace integration initiative. But well, only, uh, we're on this subject briefly, I'll digress and tell you that at one point, twenty odd years ago, we were involved with NASA, and NASA uh, realized, of course, that unmanned was a sexist term, which uh, <laughs> is 
vitally important for them not to be sexist. It's much more important to worry about those things than to worry about things like man's spaceflight. So um, consequently, they decided the U should stand for uninhabited. So they were uninhabited air vehicles. Uh, I guess they didn't count the microorganisms that might be on board. <laughs> that's true, but that's funny uh, perspective that you say that because uh, it's it's funny how encompassing this is. But and I'm sure we'll get more into that. Now, the funny thing is, as you know, I was talking a little bit before we went live. <clears throat> a lot of people think that this drone thing kicked off like last year. You know, and I, I was at Brookstone and I got into drones. I bought myself a parrot yep. and I started flying it around in the yard. Nah, these drones are great. And uh, I get, uh, you know, grad students all the time, and they're like, oh, you know, uh, can we interview you, Mr. Egan? We want to talk about all uh, the potential first with this technology and when people are going to start doing stuff with uh, the technology. And I use you as an example a lot of the time. You're my uh, – there's this great picture I keep telling people about, and you sent it to me. If I called, uh, call you the garage tinkerer, and there's that picture with the uh, – the aerosol on the bench in the garage, which I want to get into. Yeah. But a lot of these people are like, oh, you know, when are these, you know, when are we going to do this and when are we going to do that? And I'm like, geez, you know, a lot of that stuff's already been done. And I want to talk about the transatlantic flight a little bit, if if you'll indulge us with that. Maybe you could yeah. go into the history of that, when it happened and how that went down, because a lot of people don't know about it. Oh, well, the story is that in 1998, we flew an aerosol uh, from Newfoundland to Scotland. It was the first uh, flight across the Atlantic by an unmanned aircraft. And we did it to uh, make a point about the practicality of flying small aircraft long distances. At that point, I, that was, this had been a few years after I started a company called In Situ. And um, we were developing, um, as you said, an aircraft called Aerosan, which was intended to do long-range weather reconnaissance over oceans and remote areas, going to hurricanes and so on. And so I had been for several years doing uh, small-scale trials with Aerosans and uh, going to meteorologists and saying, look, it's a perfectly practical thing to do to fly these aircraft very long distances. And uh, we thought that in order to get credibility, we better actually do that. So. We uh, said, well, historically, the way you demonstrate that uh, uh, you've achieved a significant milestone is by flying across the Atlantic. So we flew across the Atlantic. It happened to be the first time an unmanned aircraft had done that. Not, by the way, the first time a uh, robotic aircraft had done it. Uh, the first time a uh, flight across the Atlantic had been done without anybody touching the primary flight controls had been in the late 40s on a DC-4. Hmm. So now I know it, it took more. It, it didn't it take more than one attempt. I, I heard there was a deal where uh, you know the the story kind of expanded that there was a, <clears throat> I guess with wind and whatever else and meeting the airplane and and uh, things like that where there was there uh, there was a little bit more drama to it than than the story just related. Um, yeah, we lost. Um... I forgot about two aircraft doing it. Uh, it was um, not because there was any doubt about the aircraft having enough range and endurance to get across the Atlantic. It was rather because uh, through that whole period that we'd been developing the aircraft, uh, we were very badly underfunded. 
there was never money to do proper engineering. There was always money maybe to cobble together some aircraft to do some sort of meteorological trial. And the consequence of that is we were always flying uh, prototypes that were kind of stuck together with bailing wire and chewing gum. And um, uh, reliability was a big problem because until you do it proper engineering, you don't get reliability. It's still a huge problem with that aircraft. Uh, so uh, we had, oh, by that time, done uh, several hundred flight hours and tests and so forth, and we had got to a failure rate of about 1 into 50 hours and between you know, a generator belt coming on or some lubrication problem, what have you. Well, anyway, so uh, uh, we had a 50-hour meet time between failure, roughly, and it only took 25 hours to cross the Atlantic. So if you say, well, okay, if we bring four aircraft, then our chance of getting one across is somewhere in the high 90s. So that's what we did. Uh, that's pretty funny, and you know it's kind of a uh, interesting history that uh, you know that I think needed to get out there because uh, the other one that really you know a lot of these uh, stories that I read now in the news, people are like, oh, you know, I got these military the drones, military, and we're you know beating the plowshares, and I'm like, eh, yeah, you know, that's not always the case, and that and that leads us to the next aircraft that some people might know. And I, and I wanted to talk about the in situ company and your participation in that and the next aircraft that came out of that and what, let's say, the con concept for, for operations or missions was with the aircraft uh, that were coming out of that company. Well, we've done Aeroson for a few years. That's why in situ had been started. I, I started in situ in the early 1990s specifically to develop this idea of a very small uh, but very long-range aircraft. I mean, long-range crossing the Atlantic, right? Thousands of kilometers in a couple of days in endurance. That's what you need if you want to do hurricane reconnaissance. And the motive, by the way, for doing hurricane reconnaissance is that uh, uh, making in-situ measurements inside the storm. Uh, mm -hmm. In-situ, of course, where the name of the company came from, um, is uh, quite important for forecasting. So this is why in the United States we have a squadron of C-130s. Uh, you can watch on the you know, Discovery Channel, whatever, Hurricane Hunters, uh, flying into hurricanes to get this information. And uh, that's fine, except flying a uh, squadron of C-130s is a very expensive business and tens of millions of dollars per year. Uh, so there's only a limited amount of that the United States can do, and people in uh, other threatened areas, Western Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and so on, uh, can't afford it at all, so there's no in-situ measurement going on there. And the concept behind uh, Aerosan was that for hurricanes and for other uh, more routine weather kind of observations, um, if you use a small aircraft, you get the data much less expensively. And uh, I think we demonstrated technically that that would be quite feasible, and uh, perhaps economically too, um, but unfortunately, the customer was um, the weather service, weather service in this country and weather services around the world. Uh, and unfortunately, governments are rather slow to make decisions. I'm afraid you should know it's uh, uh, all too telling. Uh, so after uh, five, six years of doing that, I eventually concluded that we weren't going to get anywhere and, and got out of the... Uh, weather reconnaissance business. That was in 1999. Well, here it is 15 years later. And unfortunately, uh, very sad to say, but I concluded at that time it was being all too true. 
uh, NOAA is now talking about their unmanned aircraft program. They've been doing it for years, and it's like every year it's new. They started from uh, some fresh concept. Oh, we can, <laughs> there's this wonderful new thing called unmanned aircraft, and let's think about what we can do with it. Um, what we did in the 90s is long forgotten. Uh, anyway, so uh, that's why I got out of the weather business and decided, boy, it would really be nice to find a private customer who uh, really needs to get a job done. And if you can demonstrate you can do it, then you can have lunch and make a deal. Um, well, after we crossed the Atlantic, um, there was a certain amount of publicity and people started calling and said, could you do this, could you do that? And uh, one of the more interesting suggestions that came our way was to do imaging reconnaissance off tuna boats. Um, there are hundreds of these boats around the world. Many of them are using helicopters uh, to go find fish and killing people at an absolutely astounding rate. I mean, <laughs> if, uh, if your chances of getting killed when you drove to work were the same as the chances these guys face when they get in the helicopter, you wouldn't be going to work. It's, it's absolute madness. Uh, so um, we thought, well, okay, maybe we can solve that problem. That's what led to this aircraft, now called Scanning Bill. Well, you know, it's uh, flashing back to the Aerosan thing. The other thing with the Aerosan, yeah. and I've had <clears throat> other scientists on the program, and really, you know, people always ask me, what's your favorite thing about the program? And I go, really, when you get these guys spooled up on their specialty is really when it gets kind of exciting. And it's interesting you talk about the hurricane thing because we've had a couple of scientists on the program who've been using the technology and they're like, oh, you know, you can you can gather data, unprecedented data that you've never been able to grab before because you can't, you know, fly a manned aircraft, uh, you know, a few feet off the water. And I get to learn how hurricanes form and the energy comes out of the sea and yada, 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 but all of the rest of this. So that, that's another thing that the unmanned aircraft affords the, uh, let's say, researcher is data that you wouldn't be able to get any other way. And uh, Absolutely. It, but, but we were saying that, that exact thing 25 years ago. And, uh, technically, it's become somewhat easier to do what we were talking about 25 years ago. Um, it's easier now than it was then, but it's not uh, the difference between night and day. What made the difference between night and day, by the way, uh, was the advent of GPS. Uh, the advent of GPS was circa 1990. Uh, since then, uh, there have been significant steps, but still, um, we could have been doing hurricane reconnaissance, low level, high level, whatever, uh, with aerosols in the mid-90s. So uh, you have to ask, uh, well, why hasn't it happened now? Uh, and a large part of the answer has to do with economics. Right. Well, there's economics and there's also, I mean, there was another story about, uh, you know, another hurricane story in Aerosond, Um And I think it was a partnership between NASA and probably the weather, NOAA or something, I forget. But anyway, they got a COA, and maybe you remember this story, they got a COA to fly an Aerosond in a hurricane. And they were out there getting this unprecedented data, and they decided they were like, "Ah, oh, you know, we've never seen anything like this, so we're going to sacrifice the vehicle to collect data." And the FAA revoked their COA because <laughs> they went beyond the uh, reserve fuel limit, and uh, you know, they're like, ah, "That's it, we're pulling your dance card." And uh, I mean, I don't. I know, haven't heard that story, story, but I can't tell you that the first hurricane reconnaissance is by 
Marathon were flowing in 2001. Um, there was one um, off the East Coast of the United States, and there was one in Taiwan. And the first flights into um, the eyes of Tropical Cyclone were flown in 2005. Again, one, one flight in Taiwan and one off the East Coast of the United States. So well, again, this was demonstrated a long time ago. Right, and and a lot of these first were before, and I want to kind of get into that because you always you know there's a quote about the the scan eagle, you know, yes, that was developed, uh, and I hope everybody got that for more of a, the idea of doing some tuna fishing, <clears throat> and you know before I had heard that, you know, I did a little research after that, but I didn't realize that tuna, you know, were worth so much, but I guess that's why people right, risk life and limb with the helicopters to go find the fish. But, um, yep. you know, okay, so, so that brings us back to uh, here you are, you know, here's our, uh, our you know, quintessential grudge tinker, and you're working on the, uh, the scan eagle, and you want to do the fishing thing, and l- maybe you could give us a little historical perspective of when that was going down, um, and, and, you know, maybe some of the oh, this was all happening. Yeah, this was all happening in the early 2000s, and uh, we... I got some private investors or angel investors um, who put up uh, a couple million dollars and uh, we developed the aircraft and uh, there was interest as we expected from people in tuna fishing. Then there's, we had a close partnership with a company in geological survey and uh, it looked like there was reasonable chance of those applications going forward. Uh, then Mr. Bush invaded Iraq, and uh, the company very quickly became a defense contractor uh, because that's where the market was. It was a decision made by the board of directors of the company uh, to concentrate on the military application. Um, It was a reasonable business decision. It was not one that I was thrilled about. Right, anyway, but, the consequence of that is that Institute is now a defense contractor, and we never did fly on a tuna boat. <laughs> well, it's funny how things change, and we we have uh, spoken about that in the past. And I'm sure you know you you know you want to develop things, you want to do things, and people come along, and there's partnerships or whatever else. But I think it's important to establish that you know basically that thing was developed for uh, let's say civilian purposes. Never achieved that goal, but we're going to get there. There's still there's still time on the clock, and we're going to get there. The other thing is there's there's always you know when I first met Ted on the small U.S. arc, which was kind of fun. Uh, I don't know. I you know I, I spent most of my time grousing <laughs> about the uh, about the whole process, and I wanted to get a little bit of your take on that. But I also there was another quote where you talked about if we had this. Uh, the regulations or lack of regulations that exist now that you don't, you, you, you've said in the past that Scan Eagle wouldn't exist. Would you like to elaborate on that? Well, first, uh, for your listeners, I'll explain what the ARC was. ARC stands for uh, Advisory Regulatory Committee or some such thing. And it was uh, constituted by the FAA, uh, this particular one, in 2008 or thereabouts. Um, to discuss what the rules should be for flying small unmanned aircraft within visual range. In other words, exactly what people uh, flying radio control models have been doing for decades. And 
Uh, it seemed to me that this was not a hard problem. All you had to do was go into the existing regs, and uh, you do a search for the phrase uh, for recreational purposes only, or whatever the actual term is, and you do a delete. <laughs> and now you've changed the rules to accommodate flight within visual range. Um, that's, of course, not what happened. You and I sat through many of those meetings uh, where um, suggestions just came out of the air. Well, let's have uh, Category A aircraft, which weighs like 3 kilogram and fly below 200 feet, and Category B aircraft, which uh, weigh up to 2.5 kilograms and fly below 400 feet on Tuesdays and so on. And uh, there was no rationality to it at all. It was, it was well, I suppose as, as uh, supposedly Bismarck said, uh, you don't want to watch sausages being made, you don't want to watch public policy being made. Well, that's what supposedly was going on there. Although, in the end, uh, the recommendations of the ARC were thrown out anyway, and they ended up five years later, and there's still no sensible rules. Well, that's funny. I think you've kind of uh, captured the arc kind of in a nutshell. And it was, uh, you know, I try and tell people that, you know, they're like, well, you know, they're wringing their hands and, you know, well, what should we do, you know? And uh, even as, let's say, not so far back, about a month ago, I was at uh, in D.C. for a Beyond Visual Line of Sight committee meeting that the FAA put together and you'll probably enjoy this. So, you know, we got 30 different groups in the room and I said, you know, to the FAA representative now, and, and I'm risking getting kicked off that committee for talking about this, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. You know, we're going to go and do this work. And I said, well, you know, for the sake of, you know, expediency and getting a product out here, is any chance the FAA defined the visual line of sight envelope? <laughs> you know, it still needs yeah. to be designed or defined. Okay, that's fine. Well, I, I, I think maybe for, for the benefit of your listeners, they should understand why there is a regulatory problem. Um, so air regulations are all about safety. And they're about safety for three groups. Um, people on board the aircraft, people on board other aircraft, and people on the ground, right? right. Uh, well, so uh, manned aircraft regulation primarily... Uh, addresses the safety of people on the aircraft. That's appropriate. And when you take care of them, you pretty much take care of the other groups, too. Uh, well, of course, within that aircraft, you don't have to worry about the people on uh, the aircraft. So the focus of regulation of safety uh, shifts from the aircraft itself to what the aircraft might hit. Uh, well, all right, now that's a... Uh, uh, very different kind of problem than the regulators are used to thinking about. Uh, because if you're worried about what the aircraft might hit, uh, then uh, risk and safety depend very much on where you're operating. If you're operating over a city, that's a very different prospect uh, than operating over a desert. <laughs> if you're operating over a city, you need a much higher reliability than you do if you're operating over the ocean. Uh, and that's what needs to be captured. So the way I've suggested that it be done is that the rule should say nothing more than you must have liability insurance. And that means that uh, insurance companies uh, essentially take over the job of assessing risk. Now, you might say 
uh, will our insurance companies competent to do that? Uh, my answer is probably more competent than the FAA because they actually have some skin in the game. Uh, they're not going to be perfect at it, but the FAA sure isn't either. Uh, so uh, this means that uh, for any proposed operation, you would have to look at what is the risk. And uh, your insurance company would... Uh, choose its premiums appropriately. And what you would find with unmanned aircraft today is that if you were proposing to operate over the ocean or over a desert, you would find reasonable premiums. And the insurance cost would be uh, a small part of your overall operating cost. If you were to say, well, let's go fly over the city for 12 hours taking pictures or whatever, given the unmanned aircraft reliability that has historically been uh, demonstrated, you would find the premium is astronomical and you'd better instead go to the local airport and hire a 172. So this would be a way of both dealing with uh, the regulatory conundrum and addressing the economic issues. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of funny is because, uh, you know, it sounds like a pragmatic. Well, you might approach. recall I, I said basically that at the arc and people's eyes glazed over uh, there was a there was a few times that uh, you know it was pretty there was a there was a couple of times where you know you were talking about you know looking at this kind of like like you said you know there's a probability and failures and where you're flying and you're kind of looking at it I would say taking a scientific approach and I think you lost everyone in the room there was that was one time it was another time you started talking about physics and everybody glazed over people were running out of the room and there were a couple of other times where you made suggestions and people were like oh god this guy you know he's he's crazy and I'm like well I mean I don't you but, know I mean these are good ideas but these are these are not particularly difficult concepts um, we I'm sure on this program you have talked about sense and avoid since that is a mantra that the FAA tends to chat a lot and for many I have heard it said by um, people who are supposedly authorities on the subject that uh, solving the sense and avoid problem, that is uh, the mid-air collision problem, is the fundamental barrier towards um, widespread adoption of unmanned aircraft. Uh, well, uh, the FAA calls for operation of unmanned aircraft with a level of safety equivalent to that of manned aircraft, the so-called equivalent level of safety threshold. Right. So let's look at what the level of safety is uh, with respect to mid-air collisions for manned aircraft, uh, particularly manned aircraft who are using this so-called see and avoid paradigm. And the answer is that uh, for decades, quite consistently, um, aircraft flying BFR, supposedly avoiding each other by see and avoid, hit each other uh, at exactly the rate you would calculate uh, if you assumed that scene avoid was completely ineffective. That's the so-called maximum molecule rate. No pilot, I've, I'm not surprised by that. No pilot I've ever talked to is surprised by that. We all know how hard it is to spot traffic. Uh, so uh, the equivalent level of safety has long since been achieved. We can fly at random just like manned aircraft can. Well, this is and when you start event. making friends at the at the FAA yeah. with this. And, and, and then, and these, this is an elementary thing to calculate. Uh, you can find 
the calculation done in a uh, article that runs to uh, less than a page in the Journal of Aircraft in 1983. <laughs> These are simple calculations. Um, but in any event, sea and avoid is a uh, red herring uh, for two reasons. First, if we want to talk about risk, uh, you have to worry far more about hitting things on the ground than hitting things in the air for the simple reason that the ground is two-dimensional and the air is three-dimensional. There is nowhere where the density of air traffic is so high and the density of stuff on the ground is so low that the mid-air risk even approaches the hitting stuff on the ground risk. So I'm not, when I'm flying that aircraft, I'm not too worried about hitting things in the ground, but I, I'm very concerned about what I'm flying over. Uh, well, you're, you're anyway, a pilot, that's all about too, risk. Right? Yeah. Right. And you are a yeah, pilot. And I assure you, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm flying around in my own aircraft, uh, I'm certainly not worried about hitting unmanned aircraft. I'm somewhat worried about hitting birds. <laughs> but there's not a whole lot you can do about that. No, no, it's an organic risk. But now we're going to probably run a little long, and uh, but that's okay. Sometimes uh, people complain. We used to do the podcast with 45 minutes, and people are like, oh, they're too long. And I'm like, well, you just turn it off. No, it's too good. Okay, well, you know, I can't help you. Well, but, we can uh, come is, back and talk about other subjects another time. We could, but I did want to, uh, and, and I would like to do that, and I would like to invite you to come back down to the Unmanned Expo in, in late April if you have time. Because um, I, I, I thought your last presentation was great. You got so much knowledge to impart on the uh, community, and I think people need to know this history. you got to know where you're from. But I did want to touch on uh, some good news for your company, Aerovel, and the Flex Rotor. And I don't yep. know, you know if you've been noticing that, but we uh, over here at SUS News, are in love with the flex rotor. It's on everything. We love it. <laughs> Aircraft. It's it's it's. Let's you know, tell people who want to spend money or in uh, a similar frame of mind. Well, you know, I'm I'm trying, man. I think you uh, I think you've got a winner. I mean, uh, your your aircraft, and I want you to talk about it. Your aircraft, it, it, it looks good. It, uh, it it performs well. It's got. Um, you know, it's got some things that we want to talk about feature-wise and then also regulatory-wise. So maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about the Flex Rotor. Well, with Flex Rotor, uh, I would try to address what really is the fundamental problem uh, for widespread adoption of unmanned aircraft, which is economics. Uh, they have been far too expensive all these decades, uh, and uh, that continues to be the situation. Um uh, there are these little niches developing for electric quadcopters, uh, which can be operated economically, but um, that's just about the only sector that makes sense. Um, we're interested in a very different sector, which is, again, these long-range applications in remote areas, um, doing hurricane reconnaissance, two-day missions over thousands of kilometers, uh, doing geomagnetic survey covering thousands of kilometers, um, doing uh, reconnaissance from tuna boats where you launch at dawn and you stay up all day uh, and operate tens of miles out from uh, the boat. Well, uh, we want to do this at a cost which uh, makes sense for uh, the tuna ship captain or the uh, geological survey company. 
Uh, so that means operating a cost in the uh, few hundreds of dollars per flight hour. Uh, that's uh, probably a factor of five or even ten better than has been achieved uh, by aircraft and military service. Um, now, one of the uh, uh, cost drivers uh, has been uh, stuff on the ground. That is, a scandal with Arison. We had uh, aircraft that was quite small. It's, you know, aircraft has a three meter wingspan and weighs, uh, say, 15 kilos. Uh, so it's used for a single person to carry it out and so forth. But there is all this stuff that goes with it. Um, on Scan Eagle, uh, there was, there is uh, thousands of kilograms of stuff uh, catapult and the so-called skyhook that you need to operate the aircraft. Now, uh, those things enabled uh, applications which were not possible before. I mean, you can take a Scan Eagle and you can operate it off a small boat. Uh, but there is this penalty to pay. So with Flex Rotor, uh, we're trying to make a much lighter footprint, and we do that with uh, vertical takeoff and landing. So Flex Rotor is what was known back in the 1950s as a tail sitter. Uh, it has a uh, very big propeller, which uh, uh, operates just like a helicopter rotor when the thing is uh, doing launch and retrieval. And uh, then for efficient crews, it uh, switches from nose vertical to nose horizontal, and it just has a very big propeller and can fly a long, long way. And, uh, you know, that's and one other thing before we uh, leave today is maybe you could give the listeners your, your website. And I, I, we did, we ran, SUS News ran some of the, uh, highlighted some of the videos where you were taking off of the, uh, you've got the launch boat. <laughs> And what? Yeah. And it was pretty pretty impressive. So maybe you could give people the the website where they could uh, learn more information about your company and the Flex Rotor. Well, it's A E R O V E L C O Aerovelco, and so our website is aerovelco.com, and the YouTube channel is youtube.com/slash Aerovelco. Okay, you can go watch I the fun videos on YouTube. Yeah, and you should go check them out. They're pretty impressive. I like the choices of music. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, Excellent. uh, You know, I think this was an excellent podcast. Again, yeah, we'll probably have to have you on again. As always, Tad, it's a pleasure talking to you. I I really, uh, I dig the the way that you look at these problems. It's more of a scientific approach, which I keep reminding people that we should maybe go that way. It's a little little easier to back up if people ask questions than feelings. But, uh, you know, it's a a hard-changing public opinion. Anyway... Um, that's all for this week. Again, Ted, thanks for coming on, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Thank you. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.